Hey everybody, this is Rafe Telsch and this is episode 66 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope everyone's having a good week out there. I'm being far too amused at coincidence or timing or whatever that this is episode 66 uh, just one digit shy of 666, and we're doing a movie with the devil in the title. So I, I'm being a little amused by that. Let's get to what this week's episode is. Uh, this episode actually pulls back the curtain a little bit on the process I go through uh, when people bring movies to me, which is I don't just blindly say yes. There's a couple of things I have to do. I have to check and make sure the movie's available. I've had a couple of movies I had to reject because there's just no way to watch them. But sometimes it's also about quality, uh, which I talk about in this episode, that when this movie was brought to me, I initially was a little hesitant about it until I checked it out. And I talk a little bit about that in the episode. Uh, we're talking this week about The Devil's Rejects, uh, the Rob Zombie movie from 2005, uh, and is brought to us this week by Josh Evans of the Content Clearinghouse. Uh, and I, I know I feel like I say this almost every week, but I had a really great time talking with Josh about this movie, and this becomes representative yet again of what I wanted this show to be about. Here's somebody I don't know, and we get to sit down and can make a connection talking about a movie, a movie that I was hesitant to watch in the first place. So did I end up liking the movie, or did I trash the movie that Josh brought to the show? Well, you need to listen to our conversation to see how things go. So let's just go ahead and get into it. Here we go with 2005's The Devil's Rejects. Let's start with the base question. What kind of movies do you like? What's what's your bag when it comes to movies? I have a pretty wide range of movies that I like. I am really into horror, which is probably obvious by the movie I chose. But also, I'm pretty picky with horror. So I, I find that like a lot of horror movies are just like, in my opinion, they're just not scary, kind of lame. But I also like I'm really into Marvel films. Uh, I like action movies, thrillers. I mean, I'll pretty much watch anything if it's like, if it's engaging, if it grabs me, you know, if it has good special effects, I'm into that too. What about like Oscar bait dramas? Because everything you listed is kind of the antithesis of that. How do you feel about those kind of movies? That is actually probably the antithesis of what I like. I, I mean, I'm not going to say that there are Oscar films that I don't enjoy, but typically it's like something that I won't really go out of my way. Uh, sometimes I'll like just kind of avoid it unless something, you know, like the if the subject is really appealing to me, yeah, I might go out and find one of those movies. But typically I like things that are more just like entertaining, like kind of built like explosively. And with a lot of the Oscar bait stuff, I, I don't really get that kind of sensation from it. Don't invite Josh on an Oscar <laughs> uh, setup show. Got it. Got it. No, no. I that, And that's, I have friends who are like that too. And when I ran my old podcast and we did, uh, an Oscar lead in and an Oscar recap type episodes. Um, I have had a friend who I really wanted to get on there. And when I invited him, he's like, dude, I do superhero movies. I do horror. I don't do Oscar type movies. I'm not the right person for that. So you're, you're not alone in that category. <laughs> but I feel like with, uh, you know, with horror and superhero movies, action films, like there's still like so much artistry that goes into those movies. And I really do appreciate that with film. You know, I really, like with Marvel, you know, I I know a lot of people think that it's just like people standing in front of a green screen. It's basically a cartoon. 
but I've watched a lot of behind the scenes and I just really find that there's, there's so much that goes into that, like the story, the writing, there really are like these emotional stakes, which are things that typically you would feel like you wouldn't be getting from a movie like that. So I really do appreciate that type of stuff in film. Oh, sure. I mean, I, I, there are several superhero movies that I would challenge people to say aren't serious drama or aren't Oscar caliber type movies. Um, I mean, I, I think that's why we have seen some of those movies get nominated for the Oscars. Yeah. Um, Endgame. I almost, almost cried watching Endgame. Yeah. So emotional at the end. Well, even the, the beginning. I mean, the, to me, the first 10 minutes of Endgame, you know, they could have done a very – uh, a very different approach to open. I mean, there was a meme going around the the internet, uh, where people wanted um, uh, Luis. I think it's Luis, the the character from Ant Man, um, played by Michael Pena. That they wanted him to do like a recap of all the Marvel movies up to that point as the introduction to Endgame, and that would have been really entertaining. But the way they did it sets the tone so depressing at the beginning of the movie, which the movie kind of needed. Yeah, and it wasn't like. It wasn't like an action cold open at the beginning either. You know, it was like it was real. It was like an emotional opening, like right. cold opening. But it, it really just like tugged at you, especially if you have kids. And that was something I wasn't expecting that going in because, you know, the Infinity War just started with like basically an action set piece. So I thought it was really smart that they switched it around a little bit and made it more like a little bit harder to watch, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So you said you're picky about horror. Let's talk about that for a second. What, how, In what way are you picky about horror? Well, I just find that most horror movies are not particularly scary to me. And it's probably my own fault because I've, I've kind of like desensitized myself with horror over the years. Like I've watched probably since before I should have been watching horror films. I, I like grew up <laughs> watching like Friday the 13th and everything. And even then... I always thought that those movies were like kind of cheesy, but I guess now it's like I'm looking for something that's a little bit more extreme, like something that's not necessarily like in the supernatural realm. I kind of find it hard to like suspend my disbelief with supernatural horror, gotcha. but something like, I don't know, like a devil's rejects or any Rob zombie film really where the, uh, the horror is so grounded. I, I find that like very frightening because it's things that, it's so easy for me to like place myself as the viewer into those scenarios. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, horror is an interesting genre to me because you, you're going into the movie wanting to be scared, wanting to have that feeling. And yet, as you said, if you're, if you're a, a big fan of the genre, then you have desensitized yourself to a certain point, which makes it difficult to get that feeling. And at the same time, there's, there, it's, it's probably the genre more than any other that requires that willful suspension of disbelief in order to let yourself be afraid. Yeah. It's like watching an action movie. It's like, you don't really have to just suspend anything to accept it. Like, it's like crazy that somebody's hanging off a helicopter or something. But with a movie like this, you know, scenarios that hopefully no human has ever, you know, ever finds themselves in, but unfortunately people do, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that it's like in the back of my mind, like, oh yeah, these are things that could actually happen, but it's stuff that you bury down deep and you're like, you, you need to bury that stuff to be able to go about a normal life. But then, you know, a, a really scary horror movie brings it out and you get like this, like endorphin rush and this sensation of, you know, what it would be like, what would you do in that scenario? You get like the, the people yelling at the screen because they think the victims on screen are making stupid choices. But 
because <laughs> they are day. usually. Usually, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of times they have to let you know Jason Voorhees catch you. He can't run or anything. So I I love I I, I want to say it's Geico, but it may not be. But one of those insurance commercials <laughs> oh, yeah. that does that whole thing about you know let's go hide in the barn. Why don't we take the car that's right there? No, let's go hide in that barn. Hide behind <laughs> the chainsaws. Right. And then, like, the, the killer guy is like shaking his head like they're so ridiculous. That is right. Good. That is a good one. Yeah, I like that. So what do you think is the scariest movie that you've seen? So I actually have been putting this off for a while and I was like, I don't know if I really want to watch this. But I did. I recently watched Martyrs, which is it's rough. I wouldn't recommend it. I don't know that film. It is. It's like a French extremity horror film. I think it's from, I don't know, maybe eight, 10 years ago. And it is very brutal. And I had already, I'd always read, you know, like what's the, you know, what's the most hardcore horror film that exists. And this like kept coming up. And so recently I watched it and I was like, yep, probably only needed one viewing of that. So I definitely found like a, a <laughs> limit of my desensitization. Yeah, we're going to have one of those come up later in the show that I'll talk about. So I definitely understand that feeling. Um, all right. So the podcast is Have Not Seen This. The idea is we're talking about movies. We're surprised when we find out people have not seen. What are your have not seen this movies? What are movies you have not seen that your friends give you a hard time about? I was thinking about this and one of them that keeps that kept coming up and I've seen part of it, but not all the way through is the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is kind of embarrassing for somebody that oh. likes horror movies. And I know especially I the movie we're going to talk about it. today. <laughs> I know I've seen part of it, but I have not seen it all the way through. But I still know it as like a cultural touchstone. I've seen so many breakdowns of it behind the scenes making of just like people, you know, taking the plot apart and picking apart why it's such a great movie. But I have not finished the movie. So that's a little bit of a crime in my mind. Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty big one. Um you know, I mean, we've had many guests have many big ones, but I would put that up there, especially for someone who uh, is is saying how much they like the genre. It's oh, a little no. ironic that that's the one you bring up. <laughs> I blew it. No, 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 no. I, I think it's it's great that you can be that honest about your shortcomings. So <laughs> I will work on that. Maybe I'll go watch it as soon as we get off here. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move into the movie that you've picked for this week. We are talking 2005's The Devil's Rejects, written and directed by Rob Zombie, starring Sid Haig, Sherry Moon Zombie, Bill Mosley, and William Forsyth. Police have uncovered reads like this. Words can't describe it. We here, we are playing on a level that most will never see. You're gonna start to kill him. You best start it right here. So I'm going to, before I move to my first usual question, I'm going to go ahead and jump in and say I had not seen this movie uh, until you picked it for the show. And you were one of those rare cases where when this is the one you you pitched, that you know, this is the movie you wanted to talk about. I went to some friends first to say, do I really want to do this? <laughs> because I know Rob Zombie has some not very good movies. 
and I was afraid this fell into that category. So this got actually vetted by some trusted friends before I said yes to this, because it's not only a movie I had not seen, but in some ways it was a movie I was avoiding. And uh, instead, now I've seen it because you wanted to talk about it. So thank you for that. I have some diverse thoughts on it that we'll get into over the course of the episode. The first question usually is, how do you sell this to someone who has not seen it? How do you convince this movie? How do you describe it? How do you convince people to see this movie that that have not seen it yet? I'd say it's uh, it's a love letter to 70s horror, which created by Rob Zombie, who is a man who clearly loves classic horror films. And it's, I guess, like a simplified version would be like Texas Chainsaw Massacre meets Road Trip, even though I haven't seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I don't know if that's a good reference. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, that's kind of like the feeling that I get from the film. And it, you know, it'd be like if the family from Texas Chainsaw Massacre were the protagonists and also extremely charismatic. Yeah, he definitely loves his, his horror. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. You know, I mean, I listed the major players there in the introduction, but some of the uh, supporting cast. I mean, just even people he has in tiny little roles, like PJ souls shows up from the original Halloween and, um, uh, who else stood out to me? Uh, um, I mean, so many people. So, and the, I mean, you look at this cast and they have a pedigree in horror before they came around here. Oh, EG Daly was the other one I wanted mm, to mention. Yeah. Yeah, PJ Souls and E.G. Daly, and they have this pedigree of horror accomplishments under their belt even before this movie, which I assume would be part of the reason that Rob Zombie wanted to work with them. It seems like he kind of created like his Rob Zombie players group. Like he's got uh, like Ken Forey from Dawn of the original Dawn of the Dead and Michael right. Berryman from uh, the original Hills Have Eyes. He just has a lot of like iconic horror classic actors and it it seems kind of like he was reviving some of the careers maybe of these people that were in these films that he grew up watching or maybe that maybe a little past like his his like influential era as a child but you know like classic films from the 80s a lot a lot of those actors are people from those films right yeah yeah so what is your history with this movie like, what's your background as far as when you first saw it, or why are you such a champion of it? So, I do agree with you that Rob Zombie has some pretty bad movies, and I think that he's kind of like, I'd say he's probably more like on the the lower scale as far as like the quality of his films. Most of his films, I would not propose anyone like, oh, you've got to see this. But this movie, I think it's like it's like his classic film and you know, it's part of the trilogy house of a thousand corpses is the first film. And then three from hell is the the final in the trilogy. And it really falls like right in the middle a house of a thousand corpses. There was a lot of, there were a lot of like production issues with universal when he was making it. And he had all these notes from uh, the production team and he had to change a bunch of things. And if you watch the movie, you know, it's kind of like, it's really awesome and has all these same characters and there's still like the same charismatic bad guys. But the film is its kind of a mess. It's like a rough mu- music video instead of a film almost. And the the third film is, I don't know, I think maybe he's like trying a little bit too hard. But Devil's Rejects like falls in this sweet spot where he 
kind of had the freedom to create this film the way he wanted. And he already had this history with these characters and they were well established. And so it was, I think it was like his most mature film until he maybe started trying to outdo himself eventually. Gotcha. Yeah. I remember this one coming out back when I worked for a movie website and the rumor at the time, and in fact, I, I Google searched the phrase just to see uh, if I was remembering correctly, and, and it's we used it in some of our writing. I don't know if it was true. I can't imagine it actually was true. But he assembled essentially the same team that he used for House of a Thousand Corpses. But Th- House of a Thousand Corpses was so bad and was so critically panned that he basically told everybody, do the opposite of what you did last time. <laughs> I had not heard that. Now, again, I don't know if that's true, and when I Google searched it, the only site that came up was the one that I was writing for, so that may be where I got the information from, Um, but uh, I've not seen House of a Thousand Corpses. Uh, This is the only one of the the trilogy that I've seen. The only other Rob Zombie horror movie that I had seen before this was his remake of Halloween, which I had some issues with. I did, Um, too. And having seen this now... I think I understand the issues I have with it a little bit better having this film as context now. What were your issues with it? Well, I did I the, the biggest for me was giving Michael Myers this elaborate backstory and justification for his ba- behavior and that kind of stuff, which we did get a little bit of in the original Halloween, but it was all exposition that was given to us by Dr. Loomis. And In the remake, instead of telling us, having a a doctor tell us about it, Zombie shows it to us, right? He shows us Michael Myers as a kid. He likes that, the, uh, like, the, the, like, dirtbag drifter horror character, and he, like, really leaned into that, I think, with, like, the family in his remake. Yeah, and... I un- and I I mean I didn't like that because to me that's not part of Halloween. Like getting the, you you need there's a certain amount of information you need to know about Michael Myers, but you don't need to sympathize with him. And what I felt like Zombie was trying to do in that film in the first act was make us sympathize with him as a killer. And I didn't like that. I didn't feel like we needed that. But seeing this movie where we literally are supposed to be rooting for the bad guys from the first movie, suddenly it makes sense that these are, these are zombies people, you know, these are who he wants us to root for. So so it makes sense that if he took on an established franchise like Halloween, he would apply that same idea of wanting us to root for the bad guy. Yeah. He definitely is on the side of the monsters, but I think what's interesting about devil's rejects is that they are the protagonists of the film, but I find like the more that I watch this film, I've probably seen this movie 50 times. I really like, I really enjoy just like everything about this movie, but the more that I watch it, the more that I find that like with Wydell, uh, Sheriff Wydell, that I, I find myself like rooting for him because what the devil's rejects do, like their actions are so despicable that even though they are charismatic, I feel like it's almost like a trick that he's playing on you, like making, you sympathize with like Otis and Captain Spaulding and just like their, their silver tongue and the way they deal with everyone. You're like, Oh, these guys are so clever and funny, but then you see like these horrible acts. And so it's like, it's like a back and forth, you know, you're like, you're, you like them. And then you're like, Oh my God, I hope I never run into these guys. And then they give you, 
them a foil in Sheriff Wydell, someone who's like actually strong enough to stand up to them, which is something that I think is kind of rare also in Rob Zombie's films. Usually the bad guys just get away with it. And that's just, that's what the movie is. So it's really interesting that they are actually opposed in such a strong manner in this film. And I find myself like, man, I wish that Wydell made a few different choices because I would love to see what happened if, you know, if he like saw it all the way through. Yeah, I, I almost feel like he does the exact same thing with Wydell, though, in that he starts out as the the good guy, even though he is an antagonist because we're following the Firefly family. Uh, he, he starts out kind of noble, uh, you know, wanting to bring these dirtbags down. But by the end of the movie, he has had a fall from grace as well. I mean, uh, when he goes back to see Mother Firefly, and, and I'll get, I guess, a little more into that in a few minutes, but there's a fall from grace there. He he leaves his moral code behind in the pursuit of getting these, and it's almost like he's not – I mean, I hate to use the cliche of he's not much better than them, but it's almost as if that's the route that uh, Zombie is trying to take us on. He's not much better than them at a point. Yeah, towards the end, he definitely turns into the slasher of the film. Yeah, he's he's another monster. He totally is. And I don't. Did you notice that throughout, like the beginning of the film, he's wearing his white hat? It's like a like a classic like westerns trope. And then when he has his turn and becomes the bad guy, he like takes the hat off and he's like dressed all in black. And he's basically like he's lost every visage of goodness. You know, the white hat is gone. He's like no longer really a sheriff. He's now. Basically, he's the bad guy. That's that's interesting because I didn't notice it for him, but I did notice it for Baby that she's in very white clothes through most of the movie. But by the end, by that car ride at the end, which again we'll get into in a minute, she, her clothes are not white anymore. <laughs> Mostly blood colored. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so for those who don't know this movie, we do follow the bad guys from House of a Thousand Corpses, the Firefly family. Uh, the movie opens with an assault on their house, which is a very, very Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, ranch house type type farmhouse. Um, I mean, it it definitely had was very clear that that was one of Zombie's influences in making this movie. The way that that house is and the the junk everywhere and body parts everywhere. I mean, just it felt like that. But the the sheriff and the police come in and assault this place, and and three of them get away. And we follow them as they're kind of on their escape, being pursued by this sheriff who wants to bring them down. And in part, part of the reason he wants to bring them down is because they are also responsible for the death of his brother. And my understanding is that is actually depicted in the first movie. And even though it's, I mean, it's shown here in this movie to make this one kind of stand alone. But my understanding is that's part of the first movie's plot. Yeah, actually, that leads into... Uh, what happens with his brother leads into like, I would say probably the most disturbing horror movie death I've ever seen. And not because it's graphic, but it's because of the way, like I, it's one of the most ingenious ways I've ever seen anything filmed in a, in a movie. So uh, I guess we'll go into some spoilers for house of a thousand corpses. Oh, I yeah. doubt anyone's going to watch it <laughs> off of the recommendation of what we're talking about right now. <laughs> but uh so uh Wydell, like he he gets killed by Mother Firefly, but his partner is Otis gets the drop on him and he's he's played by Walton Goggins, and so he's like kind of like this like weaselly guy. He like gives up his gun and gets down on his knees, puts his hands up, 
and there's this long crane shot of Otis holding the gun to his head and it it cranes out and it keeps going the music fades out and then the shot holds like 30 seconds past what it what you think it should and then there's like the gunshot goes off in slow motion and he falls over but it's like the most accurate depiction i think i've ever seen of what i imagine like the the amount of time you would have for your life to flash before your eyes and like for you to think of all your regrets in life he just like holds it like that and i would imagine just you know like with his twisted imagination that's probably what he was going for because every time i watch it i'm like yep this is the part where you would think about all the mistakes you've made and it's it's something I've never seen in a film before. It's so great. If you find just that clip, you probably get the gist of like the best thing about House of Thousand Corpses. Yeah, and I mean the premise of this movie following the killers is probably is what really kind of turned me off from it in the first place. Again, kind of why I felt the need to to vet this movie a little bit before proceeding with it because I want a strong protagonist that I can get behind. And if they're not a strong protagonist, I want the I want redemption or at least a hope for redemption. Even if they don't achieve it, I want the potential to be there. And like I, I've talked, I think, on the podcast before, like Robert Rodriguez's Sin City is a visually beautiful movie, but I don't like it because I don't like any of the characters. They're all rotten, terrible people. Yeah. And I was really nervous that that was going to be the case with this movie, which to some degree it is. <laughs> so how did you end up coming down? Like, did did you like this movie or was it like, yeah, I could have I could have taken it or leave it? Well, my my response to that is kind of complicated because I, I probably spent the first hour, no, probably the first 30 to 40 minutes really not liking this movie. I felt <laughs> oh, like... I mean, I I didn't like the characters, and I, I, I didn't like the characters at their core. As you said, they're very charismatic, and I it's like I don't like who Ca- Captain Spaulding is. He's the 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 clown. If you've seen any of the movie posters or pictures or stuff, but damn, he's charismatic. Like there's something about him. But I also didn't like the movie as. Uh, as a as a film i felt like you know he uses zombie uses this grainy 70s television footage when it's not always being shot as if it's a television thing i mean there's news footage cut in uh he's got the camera too close and it's grainy and it's like it just felt like honestly at one point i was thinking had zombie never even seen a movie before making this like that's how bad i thought the filmmaking was but by the end of the movie, and I, I, I literally mean the end of the movie, the the, the shot where they're in the car and Freebird starts to play, so I iconic. thought, by, by God, this is a real movie. Like, I think this film is fascinating because you are in one movie watching a filmmaker evolve his craft into something much better than it was at the start. And that's rare. Like, we see filmmakers who make a bad movie, and then they come back and they make a good movie, and then they start making... I mean, you look at Spielberg's career, for God's sake. You know, he started out with, you know, Jaws and Duel. And Duel is a brilliant film, but it's also very cheesy and kind of corny in places. And then the man goes on to make, you know, Schindler's List and, you know, E.T. and all these kind of things. That's over the course of movies. We're seeing Rob Zombie do that with one film. (laughs) I almost feel like he would... I guess I don't know exactly what he was going for, but I feel like he was 
it's almost like he was trying to make some parts of the movie crappy intentionally, like maybe as like a throwback to seventies. I watched a making of it's embarrassingly long four hour documentary on this film. But, <laughs> the movie is less than two hours. <laughs> but what was so fascinating about it was it was called, it's called 30 days in hell. It's on YouTube, but it was a, it took, it basically went from pre-production all the way through the filming of like most of the pivotal scenes in the movie. And one thing that they talked about all the way through, like every single person that they interviewed was like, we thought that this shoot was going to get extended because we weren't going to get the film we needed. And every single one of us would have kept working for free because they all seemed like they were having such a great time. But what was so interesting is like, I always think about Rob Zombie just from like his, his persona is like this like crazy rock star guy, even though I've listened to interviews with him and he seems like totally nice, reasonable, like down to earth dude. But in the, in the footage, like in the pre-production, he's like going through intentionally, like looking at film stock and saying like, Oh yeah, I like the grain on this one. I like the way the shadows come out on this one. So he definitely had like a vision, like he wanted it to look this way. And I, I think it was a throwback to make it look like, you know, movies in the seventies that were, filmed with not modern techniques like the techniques that movies are filmed with now they have like a specific look like you can tell a movie that came out in 2019 it's just like it looks crisp like it's like jj abrams it's got light lens flares everywhere it just all looks so good and so there were definitely parts where he was trying to make the movie look crappy and low res and just (laughs) rough and, I and think, he succeeded. <laughs> yes. But also there's there's scenes like like the uh the Kahiki Palms scene at the hotel. That most of that, and then like the ensuing scenario with Otis and and Banjo and Sullivan, the band, like all of that is shot like very crisp and clean, and it looks like it's created with modern day techniques. So he's definitely like I, I feel like wielding those different tools to get a desired effect. And and those scenes you're talking about uh, at the the motel and the the subsequent scene with Otis, um, I don't think I was noticing the filmmaking at that point because the film had achieved its purpose in drawing me in. And so I did not like this movie at the very beginning, but by the middle I had been pulled in, which is you know what you want. And by the end I was enjoying it. Uh, as miserable as these characters are. As, as terrible as these people are. So bad. It made me want to go back and watch the first movie, and it makes me want to see the third one. Oh, that is that is a ringing endorsement. Yeah, I was surprised. Um, I do want to bring in the critical review side of things because there's some stuff here I definitely want to chat about, and we've actually kind of already started to hit on one of them. It sits at 54% at Rotten Tomatoes. Not a big surprise. It fits at 53% at Metacritic. Not a big surprise. It's not a critically praised movie. It does have a 78% audience score at Rotten Tomatoes, though, which means it has a fan base, and they do like it. So the negative review this week comes from Stephen Hunter of the Washington Post, and he writes, The movie's signal flaw, that is, other than its degeneracy, its sloppiness, its love of dark things and pretty stains and arterial spray patterns, is Mosley as the demonic Otis. He seems rather ordinary. I mean, if you're going to do this sort of thing, you should at least do it boldly, proudly, loudly, prancingly. Mosley somehow comes up a few bricks shy in ye old charisma department, and thus his frequent atrocities lack the evil frisson they should demonstrate. 
And I don't know that I've had a negative review that I've disagreed with so much because I really dug Otis and Mosley's performance of the character. Yeah, every I feel like everything that comes out of Otis's mouth is like, oh man, I need to write that down. <laughs> That's very well scripted. Yeah, I mean, hell, his his announcement of I am the devil and I am here yeah. to do the devil's work. Like, that is, I mean, like, he is, that, if you don't get much more boldly, proudly, loudly, prancingly than that. I mean, did did Hunter see the same movie as I did? I feel like that is almost missing the entire point of this film. But that that scene, that, you know, we were talking about, like, someone to root for. I think that that scene brings in the person that I think is, like, the ultimate hero of really the entire trilogy. I think, like the only truly heroic character is in that scene with Adam Banjo. Oh the, yeah. Uh, and Adam, Adam Banjo is played by Lou Temple who fans of the walking dead will know. Um, in fact, I thought we were going to see kind of a recreation that, of the, that here because in the walking dead, he has part of his face burned by an iron by Negan. And uh, here there's a point where Otis is hovering over him with a knife. And I thought, oh, he's going to like pull out his eye or something like that. That's not the way it goes. It goes much darker than that. But um, I, I thought we were going to have a, a another film or, or project where Lou Temple was walking around with a scarred face. <laughs> yeah, he's walking around with something on his face. <laughs> so I think that like, so he starts as this just kind of like braggadocious, but he's just kind of like. A weakling is what you think. And then as he and Roy Sullivan are basically like walking themselves out to be executed by Otis, you know, he, he is not like a foot soldier in this battle between the police and the fireflies. He is just a total victim, but he, he like takes it upon himself to like seize the opportunity. He's trying to choke Otis out. He's, even when Otis like fights back, stabs him in the leg, like he still has like fight in him. He pulls the knife out and he's still going after Otis. And he really ends up dying because his friend, Roy Sullivan, who is the, uh, you would think he's kind of like the leader of their band. He just totally freezes and he lets Otis use his own hand to shoot Adam Banjo with, with the gun. And it's like, you know, it was just, I thought it was so interesting that, that character like in the 15 minutes that he's on film, like has this arc where he goes from just kind of like this wiener head guy into the most heroic act that you see in all three of these films. Like he just basically fights to the very end. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I did comment on that about, you know, it's, it becomes Otis versus two and Otis still manages to come out on top. And that's where we get the, I am the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work line. But it's, yeah, I mean, it's, that's an impressive fight back. I mean, what does he have to lose? He knows he's going to die. At that point, what what does he have to lose other than to try and fight back? And I think that's, that is very well done. Uh, as we were saying, you know, again, uh, Jeffrey Lewis, who plays Roy Sullivan, uh, another kind of has done some horror work as well. So, and you get Brian Poisson as part of the band as well, or as their roadie, I guess. Um who is stand-up comedian who does all kinds of genre stuff. He was in a, a, the first episode of The Mandalorian, for instance. Um, he, run, Ronnie, run. That's where I know him run, from. Yeah, I, uh, he's in the Fantastic Four sequel. I mean, I just watched that movie with my son uh, two weeks ago, and he's in it. I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I, I love him. I knew him first from, um, uh, uh, shoot, now I can't remember the name of the TV show, but he was on a TV show. Uh, Wasn't he was, it like he was uh, Just Shoot Me? Was that it? 
It was with oh, David Spade. Yeah, I thought he was on also like uh, what was the David Cross and Bob Odenkirk? Was no, he Mr. Like Show? Of, yeah, yeah, he was, he was part, part of, the, of their crew, right? Yeah, he sure was. All right, so so anyway, I disagree with that. I think Otis is charismatic. I think that the and and I will say Hunter's uh, review is written as a letter to Homeland Security, uh, warning them of this threat of, of seeing something strange, which I, I liked the way he wrote his review, but I think he, I don't think he, he saw the same movie I did. The positive review, and this shocked the hell out of me, the positive review comes from Roger Ebert, who I always oh, try to use yes. his reviews. <laughs> That and is great. It it does it it is a positive review. Let me say that before I start reading this because you wouldn't think so at first. Uh he says, "Here is a gaudy vomitorium of a movie, violent, nauseating, and really a pretty good example of its genre. If you are a hardened horror movie fan capable of appreciating skill in and wit in the service of the deliberately disgusting, The Devil's Rejects may excise a certain strange charm." If, on the other hand, you close your eyes if a scene gets icky, here is a movie to see with blinders on, because it starts at icky and descends relentlessly through depraved and nauseating to the embrace of roadkill. How can I possibly give The Devil's Rejects a favorable review? A kind of heedless zeal transforms its horrors. This movie is not merely disgusting, but has an attitude and a subversive sense of humor. Its actors venture into camp satire, but never seem to know it's funny. Their sincerity gives the jokes a kind of solemn gallows cackle. And I did love he finished his review with a, okay, now listen up, people. I don't want to get any email messages from readers complaining that I gave the movie three stars. And so they went to it expecting to have a good time. And it was the sickest, most disgusting movie they've ever seen. My review has accurately described the movie and explained why some of you might appreciate it and most of you will not. And if you decide to go, please don't claim you were uninformed. <laughs> wow. So. Yeah, I mean, but I think that says a lot that a film critic like Ebert could find positivity in this. And I mean, as I said, I, I, I've got issues with it. Like the most repeated line of dialogue in this movie, and you've, you've, I, I'll be curious to whether you've even noticed it. But the most repeated line of dialogue in this movie is anytime somebody says "fuck you," the response is almost always. Fuck me? No. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah. And I swear it's easily done 10 times in the movie. <laughs> yeah, they definitely got a way with words occasionally. <laughs> so I think this film has its issues, but I also think if you look at it as almost a deconstruction of the horror genre by siding us with the killers, by having the champion, the person who we normally would be siding with, descend from his sense of justice into a sense of revenge zombie has some stuff to say about the horror genre in this film yeah he's he's definitely i you can tell that he loves the killers in movies and i don't really think that anyone creates more iconic horror movie villains than rob zombie and you know he doesn't make nice movies for soft people you know he makes like these grimy nasty realistic films for people with very high tolerances and the characters are all despicable but i think that he show what i what i get from his films is that he's showing that there is like craft behind creating a good antagonist you know there's there's a lot that goes into making an, an antagonist appear on screen that you want to watch over and over like as cheesy as jason Voorhees is like the just the concept of him, he's so well designed that 
I, I know that even though I'm not a huge fan of the films, anything there's something Jason related, like, oh, I got to check this out. Because this is, you know, one of like the iconic designs of the 20th century. And I have to yet again say on this podcast, I have never seen a Friday the 13th movie. They're not great. <laughs> <laughs> but the concept is really good. The character design, top notch. Police departments around the country are notorious for turning a blind eye towards officers who have committed serious offenses. I'm Katherine Sheffield, the host of A Few Bad Apples, a weekly podcast that takes listeners into deep dives of crimes committed by bad apple officers. Not all policemen are bad, and in fact, I highlight a positive story at the end of every episode. Sharing these victim stories is my way to provoke change within police departments. A Few Bad Apples is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. But like Captain Spaulding, as you said, very charismatic. Otis, very charismatic. And I, mean, I think I, I think those two characters are creepier because they're a hell of a lot better spoken than I would have thought by just seeing images of them. Totally. Like when I've seen stills from this film, I really expected country bumpkin type characters and they're not. And then like my girlfriend made the comment when, again, when you pitched this movie, her response was, you know, Rob Zombie likes to m- make movies that show I like horror and my wife is hot. <laughs> but I don't think there's a big separation between what Baby does in this movie and how Harley Quinn is depicted. Like she's that same kind of manic type character. Totally. It's like a it's it's definitely like an iconic character design that falls into a category. And yeah, Harley Quinn is like a perfect example of that. Just like totally crazy like off the deep end lady that will just do like it's almost like she I feel like baby in this film is really hamming up like how crazy she is, like in an attempt to keep up with the guys because I've seen, I I would not say that Sherry moon zombies acting is amazing in this film, but I feel (laughs) like she's doing that on purpose because I've watched a few other Rob zombie films and her acting is like so much more reserved and like just more grounded and realistic. And at first I was like, she's a terrible actress. But then when I watch the other films, like, oh, she's like doing this for a reason in this film. Like she it's almost like baby is playing a character. And I I totally would agree with that. I mean, especially that scene at the motel. I don't think that's the real baby that we're seeing terrorizing those women. I think that's baby pretending to be somebody. Yeah, because that's not the same character who was um, holding up in the house with her mother at the beginning of the film. That's that's a very different type of the character. Yeah, she has, it is weird to see, like, even with these, like, sociopathic characters that there are still people that they love. Like, they they do love their family and they love each other, even though they're, they're, like, verbally abusive to each other. And, you know, you could tell that they would, if it came down to it, they would probably kill each other if they had to. But it's just so weird oh, to especially, see. Especially Otis and Captain Spaulding. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. You, you just They're, like, looking for an excuse. But you can tell there, there's even, like, a comfort level where it's like, yeah. No one would no one would ever get away with talking to Otis like this. But Captain Spaulding can't for some reasons because in a way, like Otis respects him and loves him, even though he probably also hates him. Yeah. 
So which of the three is your favorite? I, man, it's hard to pick between Otis and Captain Spaulding, but I think I lean more towards Otis, and it's because of House of a Thousand Corpses. Like in that movie, I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, this is the scariest character I've ever seen because he's he's like very unassuming. You see these vignettes of like what he's doing behind the scenes when he's not talking to like the main characters of the movie, like the main victims. You see him like torturing these cheerleaders and cutting people up and it's really crazy. But then he, when he starts interacting with the main characters of the film, he's like, he's very off putting. Cause he's like, you guys should leave. You, this is probably not a good place for you guys. And he's like, it almost seems like he's trying to help them. Mm-hmm. And so he takes this, like, you know, he goes from like being that off putting character to basically being the leader of all like the crazy acts that happened in that film. And then in this movie, his look is completely different. He's evolved. And I remember seeing like him with the beard and he doesn't look anything like that in House of a Thousand Corpses. So the first time I watched this, I was like, oh man, I don't know if I like the way this looks. But then as I watched Devil's Rejects, I realized like, oh, that's that's him like maturing and growing up a little bit as a character. And he has this whole different look. And then as the movie progresses, you you know, you can you can tell that he has like this plan as twisted as it is. And he is basically just like this, this kind of like evil mastermind that even though he's flying by the seat of his pants, he still is planning his moves ahead of time. Yeah. So I, I do want to, you know, some of his, some of zombies movie influences are very apparent in this. You know, I, I mentioned earlier the house at the beginning, or I guess it's throughout the film because the, the sheriff keeps going back there and our climax takes place there as well. Uh, it is very, very much Texas Chainsaw Massacre inspired. Sorry, here. Uh, and the ending of this film, right? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not trying to rub salt in that wound. <laughs> if you're not going to do your homework before you come on the podcast, I mean, I'll come do on. It no. later. <laughs> um, the ending of this movie is very much uh, a Bonnie and Clyde inspired, and and Zombie has said that that was one of his inspirations in making this film. But I want to run this one by you, okay? Because I, I, I this can't be an accident. We have a black character who promises to help his friends. And then when the police reach out, he chooses to betray them only to come back later on to the rescue. Tell me that's not Lando Calrissian from Empire Strikes Back. Oh man, I haven't even thought about that. (laughs) That's totally his character arc. It's the same storyline. Not that I have a problem with that. It just cracked me up when I realized it. I was like, oh my God, Charlie to the rescue. And I was like, he's totally pulling a Lando here. <laughs> Lando doesn't get an axe in the chest, though. That's true. Yeah, Charlie does, not, uh, Charlie does not get a promotion in the Rebel Alliance for no. helping them out. <laughs> doesn't end up flying a starship. <laughs> That's right. So yeah, I mean, I, that, that cracked me up. The other question I had I wanted to ask you is, so at, at one point, our good sheriff... This is when he's still a good sheriff, by the way, uh, makes the connection that these characters share the name of Groucho Marx characters. And they bring in a film critic (laughs) that they hope will help them, who turns out to be just an absolute buffoon and ends up insulting the sheriff and getting kicked out and being basically threatened that if he ever says anything against Elvis Presley again, he'll kick his ass. Do you think... And, and I haven't seen enough Rob Zombie films to, to make this judgment. Do you think Rob Zombie put that in as an intentional middle finger 
to critics who panned his first film. I wrote that down in my notes that, yes, I do think that. I think that's exactly <laughs> why that's in there. Because like his movies did not get good critical attention. And it is like very obvious that he's like, film critics are idiots. Because he just makes that guy. That, that guy is like the ultimate dingus in the entire film. <laughs> He is. He is. Yeah, it's uh, Zombie's cinematic equivalent of fuck me, no, fuck you to the film critics. <laughs> His favorite line. <laughs> so over the course of the film, I think part of the reason I also got into this is we do see the rejects as badasses, right? As we said earlier, you know, they have this scene at the motel with his band and Otis takes them out to kill them. And it's two against one and Otis still comes up out on top. And while that's going on, we have the scene in the motel room with Baby and the two women, and it's two against one, and Baby comes out on top. And the one that she almost loses, Captain Spaulding shows up, right? Right in the nick of time. So we see these guys as badasses. So when they do get captured, thanks to their friend Charlie, it very much becomes this moment of the predator becomes the prey, especially when the sheriff lets baby go and starts chasing her. And there was a part of that, that, that really appealed to me for some reason. Yeah, this is what I thought was really interesting is that I'd say like right from the beginning, they are, the fireflies are disempowered. You know, they're like on the run right from the beginning. And when they, they do end up having their murder spree in the middle, which I think is interesting. They only kill, I think, six people in this movie if you count Wydell, which is very a very low death count for a family with a house with a thousand corpses in it. I thought that was very like restrained. Do, do, does the house really have a thousand corpses in it? Because the headline, the, the opening narration says that there were over 75 murders took place in there. So is, is a thousand corpses really accurate? Might be a little braggadocious. <laughs> but it is interesting that they that they are, you know, they have like that, that they're disempowered. And then whenever they're like, they're asserting their power over these people who have no familiarity with death. You know, the, the band is basically just like regular people and they expect to just go about their day, end up at their show and do their thing. And so when they get into a battle with like Otis or baby, these people who are like, they don't, they don't even bat an eye at killing someone, you know, they're, pretty easily overpowered and it does show that like the the firefly family family is very well trained in the art of murder and then they're disempowered again towards the end and they pretty much like ride that disempowerment wave all the way to the end of the film even though you know tiny their the brother comes out of nowhere to kind of save the day for them they are still just like beaten down and it, but it says something about like how tough they are because they're still going. They're like, they will not stop until they're dead. Nothing is going to stop them. Well, let's talk about the tiny factor for a second. Um, no offense meant at all to Matthew, Matthew McGrory. This was his final film. Um, more mainstream cinematic viewers might know him from Big Fish, where he played the giant. I both knew that the tiny thing was going to happen and was at the same time disappointed that the tiny thing happened because when the first invasion happens at the beginning of the film, they say, you know, we, that's, that's our first shot is seeing tiny dragging a body through the woods. And yet when the attack happens, when the assault happens, the, the, there's a question of where the hell is tiny. And that question is never answered. 
And I was like, this is going to end up coming back later in the film, isn't it? And it sure does. And it comes out of nowhere. I mean, it, it, yes, that line establishes the fact that Tiny wasn't caught, but his him coming in and rescuing them is really a deus ex machina moment for this movie where it's not earned. Yeah, I would totally. I, I'd say that that's probably like the weakest part of the entire film because them getting away completely hinges on that. And yeah, it's not earned at all. It's like a total MacGuffin. Maybe we can get I, maybe get Zombie to go back and do some rewrites and do a, <laughs> do a, a director's cut for us. <laughs> oh God, no! Because then he'll want to take the Mark One Iron Man armor in that scene and improve it like Tony Stark does. Oh man, <laughs> you you have reference. to admit that's the Mark One Iron Man armor in totally that scene. It. No, I think that disempowerment that you mentioned, I think that winds all the way through to the very end. When you have the 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 rejects in that car, Freebird playing, it looks like they get away, and there's the barricade. There's the police barricade. And the way the film ends, as I said, it's very Bonnie and Clyde. They they load up their weapons and start driving to the barricade, but they know they're going to lose. Yeah, there's no way. It's a death charge. They've been disempowered to that point that they may go out fighting, but they know. I mean, you can see it on their faces when he's rousing them. There's no dialogue in that scene. And you can that's that's how good I think these actors are at those parts by the time they shoot that scene is you can see it in their faces without dialogue that this is a lost cause. You can see it in the way there's a a shot where Sid Haig like pushes himself up and you could just like that guy hurts so bad right now. You could just like see the pain in his expression. It just seems that was so exactly real. the shot I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. He's amazing in this. Oh yeah. He is. I, I have, hadn't really seen anything with him other than house of a thousand, or I guess the whole trilogy, but I'm like totally behind him now. He's just such an awesome character actor. Yeah. I have uh, friends who got to meet him before his passing at like horror conventions and stuff. And they said he just was a great guy in general as well. Yeah, on the making of everyone that talked about Sid Haig was just like, oh, yeah, he's like the funnest person ever to hang out with. And just, you know, he's like playing this twisted character. Like, oh, yeah, we just can't wait to get off work and just go get beers with him and stuff because he's just so fun to be around. Yeah. I want my friend Adam Thomas, who's been on the show before, to to do that clown makeup, though. I have to say that on the air. <laughs> get on All that. Right. <laughs> All right. So what have we um oh I here's one more thing I want to bring up before I ask you what you want to want to make sure we hit on. Um the one thing I did have an issue with that's not a narrative thing. And I, I as I said, I had my issues. I enjoyed this movie. I want to make sure I emphasize that as well. I did enjoy it. But one of the things I did have issue with is this is a 2005 movie. And Otis, who as we said, is actually a pretty well-spoken character when they're in the motel room and he's kind of antagonizing this, this, these victims that they've pulled together. He asks Roy, you know, are you a cowboy or are you just a city faggot with a cowboy hat on? And I thought faggot in 2005 as a, as a slur, really? And I'm wondering if that's because the film is set in 78 or because zombie just doesn't care. I feel like it's definitely a throwback. And also I feel like, I mean, there's a lot of just like sexual assault and violence against women, all these horrifying things. The language is like not the least of it, but the language is also very bad. But I feel like all of it is it's in service of like showing how bad these guys are because 
even though they are like the, the people you're following, I'm not sure. Like, I mean, I, I guess you could loosely call them the protagonists of the film, but it, it doesn't seem like you're really supposed to like them other than like the concept of what they are, of like how, how crazy they are and how good that they are at being these bad guys. But like, I felt like things like that are like, to me, it was like a way of showing like, yeah, you're not really supposed to be on this guy's side, no matter how charismatic he seems. Okay. I just, to me, it came across more a reflection of zombie as the movie's writer than of Otis as the character. I already didn't like him at that point. I yeah. didn't, I didn't need that thrown in. Um, I mean, I think if anything else, you get the the line uh, a couple minutes later when he's walking with Roy and Adam out and he makes the comment about smelling his wife on his gun still. And it's like, yeah, that scene, the scene in the first place was creepy. And that line right there just was the icing on the creepy cake, you know? So just, brutal. Yeah. So. And I guess I don't know enough about Rob Zombie's personal views, I guess, to know if if that those like reflect his own personal thoughts, I guess. I'm not sure on that. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm sure. All right. What have we not talked about with this uh, movie that you still wanted to get in that we, that you want to make sure we talk about? I think one of the greatest things about the film is the scoring. Like nobody can score a horror movie like Rob Zombie. There's yeah. a few, a few songs that I like, I can't hear them without thinking about devil's rejects. Now, like midnight Rider and, obviously Freebird and Rocky mountain way, like all three of those, if I hear them, I'm like, I just, my mind just flashes to these devil's reject scenes. And I saw a, it was an interview about like how he got the rights to use Freebird because I guess the production company didn't want to like foot the bill for that. So he knew that this is the way he wanted the film to end. And he recorded, he filmed it, he edited it. He didn't edit it to the score. He just had it edited as like a silent track. And then he brought like the money guys in he pressed play and then he pressed play like on his CD player and played Freebird over his edit of the final sequence. And then like they watched the six minute sequence with the music playing. And they're like, all right, we're sold. We got to get Freebird because <laughs> there's like no other way it could have worked at that point, which yeah. I thought was really awesome. His song selection is really on point. I will give it that. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I probably won't think of this movie when I hear Freebird because I have it connected with so many other things as well. But it was a well-chosen piece of music for that ending. So good. <laughs> All right, man. Let's move into the end credits here. Uh, got a couple of games to play real quick. Uh, first up's The Algorithm Says. This is a list of movies that various algorithms say you will like because you like The Devil's Rejects. I did pull out most of the Rob Zombie films that showed up in it to to, to take that away from it. Um, but this is kind of a lightning round of your responses. Do you like these movies? Do you not like these movies? Have you not seen them? Do you not see how they're connected? I don't think you'll run into that. That kind of thing. Okay. Ready. All right. So as I said, I took out most of the Rob Zombie ones, but I left one in, which is The Haunted World of El Superbisto. I have not seen that. Okay. I've never even heard of it before. <laughs> I think it's animated. I haven't seen it, yes. though. I don't okay. think I would like it. Okay. All right. Uh, the Hills Have Eyes 2016. I love that movie. Really? I did not. No? The 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 rape part of it very oh, early on just really threw me off. And if I remember correctly, that's uh, Alexandra Aha, Aja, right? Um, who I'm not a fan of. Uh, is that the... Director? I'm not sure on that. Yes, the director who who also did um 
oh, I was just talking about this movie the other day that I absolutely don't like. And uh, anyway, I, yeah, I think that's I think that's him if I remember correctly. I found it very disturbing. I thought it was I thought it was an entertaining movie. I really liked the production on that film. Okay, cool. Hellraiser. I do love Hellraiser. Yeah, kind of hard not to. Yeah, now, I promise I did not do. I did not know this in advance. <laughs> Wonder what this the is Texas be. Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> Never heard of it. Both the original and the 2003 remake showed up on the various algorithms. Have you I seen have the remake? S- I've seen the remake. I did like it. Okay. 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 Um, Hostel. Yeah, I liked Hostel. That's the one I was referring to back at the beginning. I I remember renting hostel i think from like red box or somewhere and i had it for like a week a week and a half paying for it and just could not bring myself to put it in the dvd player did you end up watching it no never I've did never seen it it's rough the premise of it alone just i just don't know that i can pull the trigger on a movie like that there's a scary premise i think the premise is like that's i, I that's why i like horror like these terrifying premises that it's like that is like the jaws of traveling yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, the Evil Dead. I haven't seen it. You've never seen The Evil Dead? Oh no! Oh my God! Oh, put that one on your hat. Have you seen any of the Evil Dead movies? No, I haven't. That's a. I guess another Army of Darkness. Because that's another have not seen for me. Oh, I got to get on that. If you see any of them, you need to see Army of Darkness. But The Evil Dead and Evil Dead Two are really, really worth it. All okay. Right. Sorry. Uh, Friday the Thirteenth. Eh, cool concept. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, trick or treat. I haven't seen that. You have or have is that is that a uh, is that Robert De Niro? Uh, I don't think so. It's the anthology no. trick oh, or treat. I haven't seen that. No. Okay. All right. I have not seen that either, and I own it. That's the sad thing is I Uh-oh. own that movie and have not watched it yet. It's probably I not very good. One. Uh, Natural Born Killers. Yeah, big fan. So you really do like these movies that kind of uh, promote the bad guys, don't you? <laughs> I just like disturbing films. All right, and last one is The Crazies. Yeah, I like The Crazies, too. I like Timothy right. Oliphant. The remake, oh, I, I should say. Yeah. Oh, well, this was for the remake, yes. Yeah, yes. I can get behind anything he's in. Yeah, I, I, I'll agree with that. He's, he's a pretty amazing actor. All right, we always end with a pop quiz for multiple choice questions based on the movie. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, number one. One of the rejects went a little method in their approach to playing their character, continuing to carry their mannerisms past cut being called. Who was it? A, Sid Haig, B, Bill Mosley, C, Sherry Moon Zombie, or D, Leslie Easterbrook? I'm going to go with Bill Mosley. Yep, it was Bill Mosley. Yes. We didn't really talk about Leslie Easterbrook playing Mama Firefly. She was pretty interesting. I got to say that. She went all out in her scenes. <laughs> yeah, she is definitely doing something. All right, number two. The film makes use of professional wrestler Diamond Dallas Page, but he almost wasn't the only wrestler in the cast. Chris Jericho auditioned for a role but was rejected as being too pretty. Who was Jericho hoping to play? A, Sheriff Wydell, B, Charlie Altamont, C, Adam Banjo, or D, Rondo? I'm going to go with Rondo. Absolutely. Another one we didn't talk about in the episode, that's Danny Trejo playing him in the film. Uh, Apparently, Chris Jericho wanted that role, so I got to say, you can never pass up Danny Trejo. He's not pretty, (laughs) though. 
No, he's not. <laughs> but if you want a part that's not pretty, then he's like the guy to go to for it. Perfect. All right, number three, the ranch house that serves as the Firefly household at the beginning of the movie is Sable Ranch, a location that has been used for quite a few other projects. Which of the following did not use this same location? A, the Supernatural pilot episode. B, Disney's The Haunted Mansion. C, the remake of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Or D, a Chris Angel performance. A remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre? That is correct. Uh, it was used in the Supernatural pilot episode. Disney did use it for the Haunted Mansion. Chris Angel did a Buried Alive performance there. It was used in an episode of Firefly. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty, until it burned down, it was pretty well used. Did they actually burn that down? They didn't. It burned oh, down. It caught oh. fire. Yeah. One of the wildfires, I believe. So, oh, man. Uh, what a loss. A couple of years ago. it's been It's been burned down for a while. All right, and lastly, for a long time, Rob Zombie said this was the hardest of his films to cut down to an R rating, going through the ratings process eight times before finally not being hit with an NC-17. Which subsequent film of Zombies took over as being the hardest to cut down to an R rating? A, Halloween, B, The Lords of Salem, C, 31, or D, Three from Hell? I'm going to go with 31. That's absolutely right. Yep. Pretty good on the pop quiz there, man. All right. Feel good about my twisted knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> All right, where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Uh, I host a weekly podcast called The Content Clearinghouse. Uh, each week, my co-host Brett and I we bring a piece of content that we love from the world of entertainment, like a movie, show, video game, podcast, or book, and then do our best to sell each other and the audience on why they should consume it. It's usually just an excuse for us to deep dive into like behind the scenes making of the philosophy of the films, things like that. But you can check that out. Um, the content clearinghouse on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get podcasts or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the content clearinghouse. Yeah, it's a great podcast. I've really enjoyed the episodes that I've listened to of it. You and your, your uh, buddy there have a, a great rapport and I really find it sometimes compelling the way that you describe the, the content to each other to try to sell each your, yourselves on it. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. I love your show, too. I've covered your show a few times on our show because I'm a big fan of Have Not Seen This. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming on. And um, I won't second guess a, a movie a second time if you... Uh, if you want to come back, I'll, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But uh, I, I really enjoyed this a lot more than I expected to. About an hour into the movie, I was cursing your name. But by the end, I was, <laughs> I was quite happy with this one. So thank you. That's horror for you. <laughs> so that does it for this week. But you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about The Devil's Rejects. Or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Talnhess on Twitter and Letterboxd, T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we're at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or email me at HaveNotSeenThis at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode. Then, in one man, he found a teacher. I promise, teach karate. And a friend. Fighting always last answer. <laughs> How did you do that? Don't know. First time. This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard Entertainment games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, 
also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Josh Evans for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other. Thank you.